0: Open your scriptures to Matthew chapter one. Tim and Emily Parks are caught in Wyoming in the snow and they were supposed to be back this morning to lead our children's program. So in the last minute decision, we have uh, allowed our children to join us this morning rather than have their own lesson. Um, but I'll continue with uh, this theme in Matthew uh, that I'd like to look at probably two weeks in a row. Uh, and let me begin with a question. How do you really know that a Savior truly was born and He wasn't just a normal baby? Other than being told so by your parents or your grandparents. How do you know that? You might answer, well, He was born in a unique way by a virgin. Do you know that others have countered that claim by saying that there are nearly 80 other births that have been attributed to virgin births, Egypt, Rome, Greece, Hinduism, Buddhism, and ancient China all have and tell a similar miracle. Now what they won't tell you is, for example, uh, the ancient god in Egypt, Horus, the brother of Anubis, was born to the virgin Isis. But it's a myth. It's an imaginary God. The Phrygian Greek god Attis was born of a virgin on December 25th. Dating far before the birth of Jesus. But it too is classified as a myth or a legend. How do we know that Jesus is any different? How do you know he was a human and not simply a myth? See, if you're not certain that Jesus truly is, the Son of God, born to die a real death, then what assurance do you have that your sins can be forgiven? That's how important the question is. Jesus told His disciples that He would return to earth a second time. That's the second advent. We're living between two advents right now. John fourteen three. Jesus said, I will come again and will take you to Myself. But how do you know you can trust His words? and that you're not believing in one of the thousands of myths and legends taught by religious people throughout the centuries? Can you give an answer? As the astronomer Carl Sagan said, quote, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The weight of evidence for an extraordinary claim must be proportioned to its strangeness. Do the claims of Christianity have extraordinary evidence? Do you know that predictive prophecy, which is unique to the Christian Scriptures, is one of the proofs that Scripture, that your Bible, is the Word of God? The Bible includes predictive prophecy as a type of acid test for its truth and reliability. It's what makes it different than the Quran or than the Hindu Vedas. There are approximately 2,500 prophecies that appear in the pages of the Bible, nearly 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled in detail. The remaining 500 stretch into the future. It begins all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, where there is a promise and a prophecy that there will be a deliverer's son who will crush the serpent's head. And it ends at the end of the last book in Revelation, where there's this beautiful promise of God wiping, quote, away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This predictive prophecy and its fulfillment is one of the reasons that we believe that a Deliverer, the Son of God, was born as a real human to accomplish a work that only He could do. Craig Keener said this, Matthew, and that's where I've had you turn this morning, Matthew emphasizes various points for his community. One of the most prominent being the authority of Scripture, which God fulfills with or without mortals' cooperation. For whatever other reasons God incarnated Jesus through a virgin, the only reason Matthew lists is, quote, that Scripture might be fulfilled. You know, the birth narrative of Jesus provides hope. And not not a, I hope so, but a confident expectation because prophecies have been fulfilled, setting him aside as unique from all the myths and legends and tall tales that have no evidence. Extraordinary claims do require extraordinary evidence. And the birth of Jesus Christ is filled with that. Matthew's Christ child narrative alone includes five fulfillment passages. And we're going, to, we're going to zip through these because I knew that we would have a 20-minute child's presentation. So I want you to track with me and I want you to see this fulfillment phrase so that the Scriptures are fulfilled or to fulfill the Scriptures. It's the proof that this is more than myth or legend. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Here you have the fulfillment of the Son of God becoming a human son. Matthew introduces the first of five Old Testament fulfillment quotations in verse 22. Look at that verse. All this took place, he's right in the middle of this birth narrative, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now when you read it, most of you will recognize this This goes back thousands of years to the prophet Isaiah. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. For whatever other reasons, God incarnated Jesus through a virgin. And there are other reasons. Jesus' supernatural character, or God's divine intervention, or the judgment upon us that we cannot produce our own Savior, Rescuer, Deliverer. For whatever reason, the only reason Matthew lists is that all this took place to fulfill Scripture. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And Isaiah's fulfillment, his Emmanuel prophecy of this particular child's birth means this, and this should should be staggering, that God is with us. That on that morning, a baby was born And it was God in a manger. It's what John said in the first chapter of his account of the Gospel. So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love, grace, and faithfulness, truth. The Son of God became a human Son. And that was prophesied and fulfilled. Secondly, a small town is chosen over mighty kingly Jerusalem. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That would be the natural place to go. For a king to be born, we would expect him to be born where? Kingly Jerusalem. Verse 2 saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Note their question. The Magi emphasized the word born. They knew a human had already been born and he has the right to the throne that Herod occupies. He has a legitimate claim to Israel's throne by virtue of his birth, which means Jesus is a real human with real rights to kingship. Contrast their inquiry with Herod's who, through accommodation to the Romans, was simply ascending to power as a client ruler under them. Look at at verse 3, Matthew 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Look at the next phrase. And all Jerusalem with him. Well, because they knew the character and the nature of Herod. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Interestingly, you have pagan magi coming from the east who already know he's been born and they're seeking him. And Herod, who should have known some of the scriptures, doesn't even know where the prophecy says that king, his rival, will be born. Look at verse 5. They told Him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so, here's, here's the phrase, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd My people Israel. It also identifies Him in the prophecy as from everlasting to everlasting. The quote from Micah 5.2 all of a sudden brings this tiny little town called Bethlehem into prophetical focus. In this narrative, we now have notice the title, Where is the King of the Jews? And Herod himself says, Where is the Christ, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, the Savior to be born? The Messiah. Interestingly, these will appear later and be connected to his crucifixion. Don't miss the fact that Herod views this child as a threat. Even as a baby, he has king's attention. Even as a baby, he has created allegiances that extend far outside of Israel to foreign countries, while at the same time, he's already threatening powerful men that sit on the throne within his own country. Men who should have rejoiced at his arrival, but now they want to exterminate him. Look at verse 7 of Matthew 2. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. Interestingly, how Herod, an unbeliever, completely believes in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah 5 verse 2. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him how much sinister plans are done under worship. How much crookedness and evil are done under the banner of worship. Bethlehem, a sparsely populated town that means house of bread, where the bread of life of John 6 is placed in a feeding trough. But Bethlehem is important because it also connects Jesus' through that kingly line of David, who was also born in Bethlehem. Craig Blumberg states this, Thus, one born in obscurity is recognized by unlikely devotees as the future king of Israel. The child whose birth is shrouded in suspicions of illegitimacy, chapter 1 of Matthew, is in fact God's legitimate appointee. On the other hand, the legal rulers, both political and religious, by their clinging to positions of power and prestige, prove themselves to be illegitimate in God's eyes. Sadly, the church in many ages has perpetuated this pattern. Meanwhile, God often chooses to reveal himself to pagans, at times even in the midst of their religious practices, to lead them to the full truth found only in Christ. A small town prophesied to be chosen over mighty Jerusalem. Third, there is a new exodus out of Egypt, which means Jesus is going down to connect with His people's heritage, only the second book in our Bible called Exodus. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Here's the formula again. Here's the phrase. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and He's going to quote Hosea. Out of Egypt I called My Son. Do you remember that's how He referred to the nation of Israel before they were a nation. He called them out of Egypt and He referred to them as His Son, as a nation. Matthew is citing Hosea 11, 1-4, in which the prophet speaking laments that Israel, God's Son, keeps on turning away from the true God to false gods. Don't miss the connection. Once again, the Son of God for the first time is born and they reject the true God. He goes down to Egypt where there's this picture of deliverance and rescue and identification. If you go back to Exodus, we, we won't do that now, but Exodus centers, if, if you remember the, the signs and the wonders, if you remember the final sign that God uses to sort of release His people, actually gets a name. It's called the Passover, right? There's a feast. And that sign focuses on the divine death of who? God sends an angel, or according to the Psalms, it may be a band of angels, and it focuses on all firstborn males. Firstborn sons. And God would deliver them if they had taken the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorposts and on the top of the door. The Gospels now focus on the divine birth of an only son. And you're going to see similar divine protection of Jesus and his family through angelic intervention, just like you see in the signs and wonders of Egypt. And it echoes the protection that God gave to Israel and Egypt In the new exodus, the new rescue, the new deliverance through a Passover lamb, Jesus also goes out of Egypt where he's going to provide deliverance through his death, not just to those who are imprisoned in Egypt, but to be the savior of the world. There is a new exodus out of Egypt that was prophesied in Hosea and fulfilled at Christ's birth. What set the stage for that is the fourth prophecy fulfilled, and that is the massacre of the innocents. Look at chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 16. Here, Matthew cites Jeremiah 31. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. That's probably why all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Shortly after the divine birth of the Son of God, you here see satanic details of Herod's sadistic plot to massacre innocent children. Without dwelling on on that horrific picture, note this, that the Lamb of God clearly has the devouring lion's attention. Matthew applies this passage to the mothers in first century Israel to describe the anguish they feel as their young sons had been massacred by Herod in his attempt to extinguish the Christ child. There's a picture of that in Revelation where the dragon seeks to devour a child. As evil unfolds, though, remember, one of the purposes of Christ being born, 1 John 3, 8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Sorrow will give way to joy, devastation, to restoration, grief, to joy, death, to life. So on this dark backdrop, remember what Isaiah prophesied. He says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Prince of Peace. The massacre of the innocents. And finally this morning, in this final prophecy we'll consider, is the obscurity of the Christ child or his humiliation before his exaltation. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, all men eventually die. All evil rulers eventually die. As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, see, when Herod died, they, just, they, they, they split the land into three and, and let each of Herod's sons rule over it. Well, in the area that Joseph was intending to go, it was led by Archelaus. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. By the way, be be comforted with that statement. Everything that Joseph had already seen. He's got angels talking to him and he still can be crippled by what? Fear. Fear. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that, here's the formula, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Jesus, the refugee to North Africa, is taken to Nazareth. There is no explicit scripture where you can go back to the Old Testament and see this, so what is, what is probably happening is he, is he is summarizing a broader theme of obscurity. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 6, Though he, Christ Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Well, what does that look like? Being born in the likeness of men. Matthew invites his audience And by extension, you and me to consider and worship the God who accepted the ultimate vulnerability, but each at the same time fulfilling scripture. To be born as a baby in mundane conditions, to obscure parents into a murderous world, to become a refugee to Egypt, to move north where he will eventually be rejected by his own townspeople, being threatened to be thrown over a cliff to be persecuted by the religious elite, to face shame, rejection, suffering, and death so that He could accomplish His mission, which is to save His people from their sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. So how can you know that a Savior... Truly was born, and that Jesus can forgive sin because we agree with Carl Sagan. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. One of the ways that you can be assured is the fulfillment of prophecy, even as Jesus is a baby, that he is fully God and now fully human, so that he died a real death and was really buried and rose again the third day. The point of prophecy is to also inform us of the future so that we can just how we live in the present. So here's a reality you can trust in. Isaiah 1.18 Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, They shall become like wool. This week, I found great encouragement in this, where Jesus said to the woman who had a very bad reputation in a city that she even stood out among other sinners as a really bad sinner. Jesus tells the religious people who are condescending and judging her, He says this, I tell you, her sins, listen to the next phrase, which are many. Jesus knows our sins. And He knows those of us who are like outdoing others in sin. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And your sins can be forgiven in Christ Jesus too. a matter of fact, John says these are written, these seven signs in the Gospel of John are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that in Christ, you may have life in His name. I'm going to invite our music team forward. Christ's child is no longer a child. Every December we need to be sure we're not placing Him back in a manger. He is not only the King of the Jews, as the Magi said, or as Pilate said, here is your King. He even chose to put that above the inscription on the cross. He's not only the King of the Jews, but He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul says it this way that at the name of Jesus, one day, saved and unsaved, believer, unbeliever, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will say something. Every tongue. And I don't know if it's in the language we grew up with, our heart tongue. I don't know if it's thousands of different dialects, but every tongue will confess this, that Jesus Christ is Lord He's king. He's sovereign. And they will all say that to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe that? Ours is is a reasonable faith with evidence, with predictive prophecy fulfilled, even as he's an infant. How many more were fulfilled during his life, and how many more at his death and resurrection? Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray.